Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome back to Backchat our roundtable discussion of the stories behind the stories. If the Regular Nature podcast is a lovingly prepared breakfast, then backchat is some half-cold toast as you run out the door. This time on the show, we'll be talking about covering breaking news, taking a lead from our readers, and the ethics of editing genes. I'm Nick Howe, and joining me in the studio are Davide Castlevecchi, Hello, Nick. I'm Davide. I am Black Hole Correspondent for Nature. Anna Nagel. Hi, I'm Anna. I'm the Chief Editor for Digital and Engagement for Nature. And Heidi Ledford. I'm Heidi. I'm one of Nature's biomedical reporters. Coming up in the show, we'll be chatting about our audience telling us what they want to know. Is asking them for ideas the future of journalism? We'll also be talking about gene editing. What are the next steps? Will it ever be socially acceptable? Firstly, though, listeners will likely remember the news coverage of the first image of a black hole that happened back in April. Across the world, there were seven press conferences where the announcement took place, and the news outlets worldwide jumped on it as a story. Davide, you were one of our reporters on the ground. I was indeed. Together with uh, Shamini, who's our colleague from the media team, we went to Brussels for the European press conference. Before we get into talking about breaking news, could you just tell me what this story was about? It was an unprecedented experiment which looked at a distant black hole using uh, radio telescopes scattered around the world and produced for the first time an image of the detailed appearance of this thing. In this section of Backchat, we're talking about breaking news. What do we actually mean by that? In a lot of what we do as science journalists... We uh, often report about research that we knew was coming. A lot of times there's research that is under embargo, so we have some kind of confidential information and we can prepare the story ahead of time. So I wouldn't call that breaking news. I mean, even if, even though it's unexpected or unknown, hopefully, to some of the readers. But, but then there's the, there's the cases where you have to report basically yesterday. So you're, you're told something happened. And you just have to get the story out as soon as possible because that's what that's what news is. Right. And, and this was maybe one of those breaking news cases. You knew about the press conferences and you knew something was going to be announced, but not what it was. How did the day pan out? I had pre-written a story assuming that the press conference was going to be about the black hole at the center of the Milky Way. I knew that there were two 
supermassive black holes that this experiment was looking at. One was the one I just mentioned, and the other one was in a, in a different galaxy called M87. Now, my story said first image of the black hole in the Milky Way, and it describes this black hole and, and so on. And from the first five minutes of the press conference, I knew that I had to change the story before we pushed it live. And the way it worked was we had a Google document that we were all working on at the same time, me in Brussels, our editor Nisha Gaines in London, and Emiliano in Washington. And while the press conference was going on, I was able to edit it. I took out the parts about the Milky Way. I, I, I wrote, you know, I added quotes from the press conference. And within, I can't remember exactly, but I think within 20 minutes, we had, we had something ready to go live. So we, we pushed it live. After that, I wanted to get comments. The press conference is at, at this time is still going on, but I really want to get some comments from an expert who was not part of the experiment. And I had pre-warned a famous black hole expert at Stanford University, this is in California, where it was, I think, 6 a.m. for him, that I would want to interview him. So I went outside of the room and I called him on Skype. So then I added quotes from him. And so the live version of the story was evolving as the press conference was still going on. I mean, it fits some definitions of breaking news in that we were told to go there. We were told that something was being announced about this experiment. So we had some vague idea of what they could be talking about, but we didn't actually know what the results were. Well, this was clearly something that got coverage all over the world, but how, how do we decide whether to drop everything and cover a story? Ah, that's, mm-hmm. uh, that's the... That's the art. <laughs> that's the $64 million question. Yeah, I don't know. I... Um... Well, sometimes it's really obvious because it's just huge. And that may have been, that presumably was the case, I would guess, for the black hole. And sometimes it's kind of borderline and, and we can't decide. And then the, then here at Nature, we have many, many discussions <laughs> round and round, sometimes in circles about whether or not we ought to do it now, whether we ought to do it later, should we rush it, that sort of thing. But I think the clear cut cases, yeah, it's just, it's exciting news. You're excited to cover it. It's a big development. Maybe you didn't expect it. You know, your readers are going to want to know. And, and yeah, so you just rush to get it out as quickly as possible. They're really fun. They're a bit of a, an adrenaline rush. But I often think I'm glad that I don't do them just one right after the other because that would get to be pretty tiring. Mm, so, I mean, what is it like then reporting? You said there's a bit of an adrenaline rush. What is it like when you just walk into the office one day and someone says, here's a story, run? Depends on the story. I mean, some stories, if you know a lot about the topic, you know right away who to call and, and what to do. And, and you know, it's it's just fine. Sometimes, for instance, the Nobel Prizes, when they're announced, sometimes you, you know that field particularly well. You know who to call. Maybe you've planned ahead of time. Oh, it might be cancer immunotherapy this year. And I, I last, you know, I had some cell phone numbers lined up and ready to go for that one. Sometimes it's something you don't necessarily know anything about, and you just just have to kind of scramble to get what you can at the moment. I think when I first started out in journalism, they were pretty scary to me, but now I just know that you're just gonna you're gonna get it. It's fine. <laughs> it will be what it will be. The Nobels are a good example where, where sometimes I have to confess they reveal the names and their people maybe I've only vaguely heard of, but I don't really know what the research was, and so. Yes, it's like the adrenaline rushes. You have to get the news out. And so we usually put the just the names and some very basic version of the story out immediately on our website. And then we get on the phone. 
Well, thinking about the black holes then, is this sort of the case that it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy? I mean, for this one, there was a press conference, they were all over the world. It kind of was made to be breaking news. Like, is it just something that anything can be breaking if people push it enough? I don't know about the case of the black holes, but you definitely do get press releases and maybe sometimes press conferences as well that try to sort of create breaking news from an event that is maybe not what I would consider to be up to the standard of breaking news. And and, there have been actually there have been times where I've covered a story. It wasn't a huge step for the field, but the people who organized press conference had lots of people attending, spun it in the right way. And I knew there was going to be a ton of coverage and that we should probably do something, even if what we did was to kind of let some of the air out of the tires and say, well, you know, this has already been done you know, in other places. I For the Brussels thing, I, I kind of wonder how you guys decided to take the risk to go out there in person and take someone from the media team. And what if you had gotten there and then the announcement had been like that, like had been something that was overhyped or, or not that interesting? Well, in, in that case, the media advisories we got and various informal messages all pointed in the same direction, which is that they had some substantial, important results. And the same thing happened to me in 2016 when I actually flew from London, where I'm based, to Washington, D.C., to witness the announcement of the first detection of gravitational waves. I mean, in that case, there were rumors going around since like six months before, and we, we kind of pretty well knew what the announcement was going to be, but it still was still kind of that historic moment that you don't want to miss. The the Brussels case also was bound to be something that attracted interest from a more general audience. I mean, everyone has heard of black holes. No one had ever seen one. And it, it's it's no coincidence, this image that they revealed in Brussels in April made the front pages of newspapers around the world. Well, it seemed like it was a period of breaking news because the week after the black hole story, Nature published a news article about pig brains being revived. We actually covered it in the podcast. I actually covered it in the podcast and it got a lot of coverage around the world. Anna, you were involved in this story as it emerged. Could you tell us just a little bit about it? So back in April, scientists managed to restore some of the functions in pig brains four hours after they died. So... We knew from the off that this was going to be a big story. It sort of makes people question like the definition of death. Um, And there were lots of ethical questions, lots of research questions about how this was done. So one of the things that we did was that we know that our audience have very curious minds. We know that there's going to be things that they would want to ask that we just might not have thought of or might have been missing from the story. So one of the things we did in this new story was we thought, well, we'll put in a call out to say, what are the questions that you have about this research? It is such kind of groundbreaking work. There must be so many questions. And so that's what the question was. We embedded it in the um, original news story and sat back and waited for all the questions to flood in. How exactly did this work? So we just embedded a little interactive element at the bottom of the article. We gave a couple of example questions of the kind of things that people might be interested in. So about whether the brains might be conscious or what it would mean for treating brain injuries, that kind of thing. But then we also left an open text field for people to to chip in and just ask us what they wanted to know. And we left that running for about 24 hours. We got an awful lot of responses. We got around a thousand responses straight off. 
And then we use that to help craft a second story that really focused in on what our readers really wanted to know about the research. And how did the audience respond to the survey? A lot of them chose from the questions that we had suggested, which helped um, sort of steer our coverage about that. But then we also got just some really interesting answers. Some of them all sort of piled up in certain areas so that we could kind of answer a catch-all question that covered a bunch of them. Some of them were, were really insightful questions about the research that we could answer either from reporting that um, the reporter had done as part of the original story that hadn't made it into that first story or that we went off and found through other means. So it was it was great for the audience to push us in certain areas that we might not have thought of and for us just to be able to to really focus down on what it was that people wanted to know. Right. And were people very interested in the resulting article? This particular article was not problematic. It had an extra spanner in the works because it came out around Easter. So there was this extra holiday time. So it was a few days before the article actually got live on the site. Sometimes a bit of a delay like that after a big splash of a news story can dent your traffic or mean it's sort of sort of disappeared from people's memories by the time the next Monday has rolled around. But this story didn't suffer that at all. It did really, really well. People were still really interested in this sort of second wave of information they had that was really answering the questions that they'd had. Do you think we'll be doing a lot more of that in the future or was it so time consuming and taxing and so forth that we have to hold it back a bit? I don't think it's so much that it was time consuming and taxing. I think particularly with stories that are very much about scientific research, there are only certain ones that it will work well with. Mm -hmm. But other stories that are more community focused. So, for example, we've done an awful lot recently about bullying in science, misconduct Mm -hmm. in science. So soliciting stories and questions and whistleblowing from our audience on those kind of topics is something that we're really open to. And it also just helps us find those stories and and bring light to things that are happening in the community that we as editors or journalists or people who are one step away just simply might not know. And we have various mechanisms that people can use to get in touch with us. We've got our social media accounts. We've got a tips email address, which is tipsatnature.com if you want to drop us a line. So it's great to be able to put those calls out to the community so that we can really report on what's happening. And Heidi, Davide, as reporters, what do you think about responding to your readers' questions that they have about what you've reported on? I think, you know, looking at the questions that came in about the pig brain story, uh, I thought they were really good, actually, and and really um, interesting. And I thought, wow, I would love to get, you know, that kind of feedback, actually, on on a story that I wrote. And it helps me decide not only, you know, maybe the next day response, but also what I'm going to follow in the future and try to keep tabs on. And for a lot of the topics that I cover, which tend to be quite esoteric, it would be super helpful to know how certain things, certain descriptions or explanations come across, which is sometimes completely in in a completely unexpected way. I mean, I I think I know what readers would would want to know about black holes because everybody wants to know that it's what happens if you fall inside one? But, <laughs> that is the key question. Yes. We need that answering, David. Yes, uh, but I'm not volunteering to oh. do the experiment myself. So we've all been very positive about this in our discussion, but are there any downsides to this approach? Yeah, I mean, sometimes it just doesn't work. <laughs> we can we can you know do our best to ask good questions and what we think are really kind of interesting things and sometimes people would be like mm, meh I'm not too fast really actually and, and I mean that happens and we just put it down up to experience and we try and work out why it might have happened in that case the other things are like maybe a number of years ago the equivalent of this was the comment section mm. underneath articles and lots of 
news websites and other websites just did away with them because they came became a hellscape of horror and trolls and negativity and just spam often. But yeah, I mean, there are risks, but you you have to think about what they are going to be every time we use the tools that we have, the benefits and the risks and what could or could not happen and uh, make a decision based on that, I guess. Finally, on this episode of the Back Chat, we're going to be talking about something which I'm sure will also get a reaction from our audience. And this is something that continues to make headlines and it's the editing of human embryos. On the last back chat, we talked about Her Jingkui, who edited the embryos of two babies in China, and the fallout from that. Since then, there has been another Russian researcher who has said he wants to try a similar thing. It seems that this is something that's only going to keep happening, and that begs the question, what needs to be done to make germline editing safe and acceptable? Heidi, you've been writing about this Where do we start? When we say germline gene editing, what we're talking about are making heritable changes often to human embryos. And it's, oh, it's such a contentious area. I think when you say, you know, where do we start to make this safe and acceptable? I think you you already, you open a huge can of worms. You can think about it in terms of the, the technical hurdles and you can think of it in terms of the societal hurdles. And when you get into the societal hurdles, then you have to think about for which societies, you know, a lot of the discussion is going on in the United States and Europe. There are many, many other countries and many, many cultures and religions and viewpoints that, you know, all could have, you know, very different takes on the issue. But when you talk about the technical hurdles, they're kind of the easiest to to grapple with, I think, at the beginning. And for that, uh, there's still quite a few, (laughs) I would say. And so maybe one of the key messages is just to sort of realize that they are significant and there's quite a few of them. So it's going to be quite a while. And Heidi, you've written a new story about some of these issues. Can you give us a bit of an overview of it? The story came about, I guess, because the news from late last year about the embryos that had been gene edited. And a lot of us, including myself, I would say, reacted with horror. I mean, it wasn't entirely a surprise, but it was still a bit horrifying because we thought, oh, we're not ready. And so then that raises the question, well, when would we be ready, really? So so that's sort of how the story came about. There are people out there who would say we are never going to be ready for this. I mean, this is taking a big step. So doing something like gene editing in a heritable fashion can it can change the human population. It's 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 a staggering thing to to think about when you when you get into that. There is a case to be made that maybe we should never use it or maybe we will use it, but it seems like people already are. So is there anything we can do to sort of help people along the way in navigating these sort of tricky ethical waters? There are efforts to come up with more definitive guidelines about how these technologies would need to be tested before you could deploy them safely. So they do raise some specific questions, even when it comes to, you know, how clinical trials would be designed. You know, how long are you going to follow someone who was born from a gene-edited embryo? Do you just follow them for a few years? Do you follow their children and their children's children to find out what the consequences were going to be? So, you know, there's there's quite a few unanswered questions, I guess, in, in that realm. There has been, you know, for instance, there's... Um, the U.S. National Academies, and then also the Royal Society here in the U.K. They've they've formed yet another panel to talk about some of the details and, and guidelines as to, you know, what information we really need to know before you could go forward. Is that going to do anything to stop someone like He Jong-Kui? I don't necessarily think that it would. I mean, it does seem as though, you know, we had a follow-up story recently that about a Russian scientist who also wants to to gene edit some embryos in a way that's not medically justifiable. 
for the risk that you're going to take, it's it's just not justifiable. And it is, again, uh, relating to, to trying to generate HIV resistance in, in the resulting children. But there are just so many other ways that you can protect those children. Why would you take this risk? And who's going to stop them? We don't know. According to the story, there's some Russian law that could apply, but people aren't sure yet. And again, scientists are sort of reacting with horror, but they, they, what, what can they do? Is there any push from people outside of the scientific community who are interested in this sort of gene editing? Certainly there are some advocates for people whose lives are affected by genetic disorders who want to see this happen. From what I hear, there was a lot more of a push initially when the possibility was first being discussed and that over time, as people have sort of seen that while this isn't being rushed out right away, this isn't an imminent thing, and and there's also been more discussion about some of the potential risks of the technology, that there's there's less of a clamor. There also, you know, there are also people who are very concerned about this among the disability advocates, for example. There are people who see this as an avenue to making disability even further stigmatized. Certainly there are some people in the deafness community, for example, who feel that this is a part of their life. This is they would have children who were deaf, too. That would be, you know, they would be a part of their community. That is absolutely fine. And they don't want to necessarily, for one thing, see that community shrink and for another thing, see it, you know, become even more stigmatized. Again, again, this is something that I think we covered a few years ago mm-hmm. as well in a feature that was, should you edit your children's genes? Right. And it had a mix of responses from different people, from different patient backgrounds or different conditions. And some were, yes, I would. And some were like, no, absolutely, I wouldn't. And I think it's interesting that we covered it at that point, And now it's suddenly become much more of a reality or much more of a possibility mm-hmm. in some ways. But like you say... There's also been this sort of step back as there's more awareness of the potential difficulties or side effects or still the unknowns that are associated with the technology. There's a big ethical question that I find I don't really like to grapple with very much and that a lot of the people that I talk to or interview, you know, certainly for this story, don't really like to touch either, which is how far should someone be allowed to go in order to have genetically related children? Because that's kind of what it comes down to, right? You know, at the moment, what some families may choose to do if they are carrying a genetic disorder is is to screen their embryos and try to find, you know, those embryos that, that don't carry it and then use those for implantation to generate the pregnancy. But, you know, it doesn't work for everyone. Some people, they may not have enough healthy embryos to use. Should they then be allowed to tinker with their embryos in ways that carry certain risks in order to have a genetically related child that doesn't have the disorder as opposed to adoption, other options out there. And that's something, you know, it's something I I don't think I could ever really decide because I'm not in that position. But then that's that's what a lot of people say too. But it's, I don't know, it's sort of one of the underpinnings here. It is a case of there's a lot of really blurry lines here. There's no clear-cut case, for example, when you're talking about that. Like, what are we counting as disease? Yeah, that gets very blurry too. And there's a distinction that we like to draw between sort of, quote-unquote, medically necessary interventions as opposed to enhancements, which, you know, might be things like giving you blue eyes or giving you uh, making your children more athletic or more intelligent or what have you. I mean, a lot of those things really are beyond the scope of what we could do now anyway, because they're governed by many different genes and and we don't have really the technology to tackle quite so much at the moment. But I think it's good that the discussions are happening now. But then, yeah, even within the sort of more medically relevant 
arenas. Which ones are sufficiently severe to warrant this kind of intervention? Are there alternatives? Could you avoid making the gene edit heritable? So maybe don't do it in the embryo, but can you do it in the developing fetus? Can you do it when they're a baby? Can you intervene at that point and, and still save them you know, from the disorder and so forth? So, so yeah, it, it does get into a lot of questions. At the moment, I think we can kind of hide behind the fact that the technology is not advanced enough and it's not safe enough. And so it is possible, you know, to sort of sidestep some of the, these bigger questions. But I think it's it's really good that, you know, there's an effort underway to deal with them now because it, it's, you know, that time will come. It's interesting that when we wrote the original story at the end of last year, when the news broke about the um, embryo editing, again, we embedded something in the article that said, was this an appropriate use of the technology? Yes or no? Very straight question. We got thousands and thousands and thousands of responses. And the majority said, no, this was not an appropriate use of the technology. But it varied hugely by country, by which part in the world people came from. So there are all these questions around this kind of technology that are really profound about the human condition and about research and science and ethics and all of these things. And it might be that as they battle through all these things, you get very different answers from different places in the world, people with different experiences, people with different social ideas, or just there'll be so many considerations for something that's a really profound question that it's going to be a really knotty question for a long time. It's not going to be an easy one to answer. There are so many different things to consider with this. And as you say, there are different regions that may think differently to each other. Is there a chance that we will all agree on how we go forward with this in the future? Personally, I sort of imagine a patchwork of regulations and, you know, different stances in different countries. But there are times when the world has kind of come together. The World Health Organization has, you know, a platform on tobacco and, and smoking cessation and so forth, which many, many countries have signed on to. Um, nuclear proliferation is, is, you know, something that, I don't know, it's been a challenge, but it is something that is widely agreed upon. Would germline or heritable gene editing be in that category? I, I don't know, because it does touch on a lot of different things. There is some precedent in the sense that there is a technique called mitochondrial donation that has been somewhat approved in the UK. So it's you have to apply to, to undergo the technique. And, but it's, it's a way to prevent the transmission of diseases that affect organelles called the mitochondria. And that is something that is not allowed in the United States, but it is allowed in the UK. But it, it, it's also very tightly regulated in the UK. And so you can have these differences. But I'm not sure that we would ever have a global consensus on something like that. But it, it is important to have a global discussion about it and to think about the impacts globally, even when you're coming up with regulations, I guess, within your own country. Well, there we have it, listeners. Many thanks to our guests, Davide Castelvecchi, Anna Nagel, and Heidi Ledford for joining me today. You can read their work and more stories from the world of science over at nature.com news. If you want to get in contact with us, you can reach us on Twitter at Nature Podcast. This has been Backchat. I've been Nick Howe. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack 
for free shipping and 365-day returns. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.